Angels are amazing and fascinating creatures. They are persons in that they possess intellect, emotion, and volition. They are persons, but they are not humans. They are spirit beings. Angels are not main characters in the story of the Bible, but they are indispensable supporting actors. In 34 of the 66 books of the Bible, there are specific references to angels. That's over half the books of the Bible. 17 books in the Old Testament refer to angels, and 17 books in the New Testament refer to angels. The word for angel is used 108 times in the Old Testament and 165 times in the New. The combined witness of the Scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, and of our Savior assures us that there is a world of intelligent, powerful, invisible creatures about us and above us. To those who respect the Word of God, the evidence for angels and demons is so widespread and so substantial that it is positively overwhelming. To say it another way, the fact that angels, Satan, and demons exist is as certain as the fact that God exists. When we compare us, human beings, with angels, we find that there are some similarities and there are some differences. Angels and men are both limited by time and space. That's one area of similarity. Both are dependent upon God. Both are accountable to God. Those are some of the similarities, but there are some definite differences between men and angels. Let me mention four of the most significant differences. First of all, number one, angels are spirit beings by nature, but we are creatures of flesh and bone. Jesus affirmed this basic difference to the disciples when after his resurrection, they thought he was a spirit. He said to them in Luke 24, 39, Behold my hands and my feet, handle me and see, because a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. Angels are spirit beings in their very nature. Referring to angels, Hebrews 1, 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits? They are spirit beings. A second basic difference, difference between men and angels is that angels are greater in strength, in swiftness, and intelligence. In many ways, angels are far superior to us. But you know something interesting? Even though angels are greater than us, we are strictly forbidden from worshiping them. Strictly forbidden to worship them. Several passages in the book of Colossians forbid worship of angels, but also angels themselves forbid it. In the book of Revelation, when John saw the future heavenly Jerusalem and the glory of God, he fell down to worship the angel who had revealed these things to him. But the angel said to him, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brother and the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Twice an angel said this to John. Even though angels are greater than us, they are greatly inferior to God, so our worship is to go to God alone. 
Thirdly, a third basic difference between men and angels is that angels cannot die. They are immortal. In Luke 20, 35 and 36, Jesus said, But those who are counted worthy to attain to that age, talking about the future, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels. Angels cannot die, just as we won't be subject to death after the resurrection. And then fourthly, a fourth basic difference between us and angels is that angels are not a race as humans are. In other words, when God created mankind, He did so by creating Adam and Eve. From Adam and Eve came all of mankind. Every human being on the face of the earth is related to Adam and Eve and to Noah and his wife. That's because we are a race. But when God created angels, He created all of them all at once with all their unique qualities. To say it another way, there are the same number of angels now as when God created them. There are no less, there are no more. Angels don't procreate. Angels don't reproduce themselves. Jesus taught this in Matthew 22 when he told the Sadducees, In the resurrection, men do not marry, but are like the angels of God in heaven. So those are four basic differences between men and angels. One, angels are spirit beings. Two, angels are greater than us in intelligence, swiftness, and strength. Three, angels cannot die. They are immortal. And four, angels are not a race. They are not a race like the human race. Therefore, if the Lord would have determined to redeem fallen angels, it would have been necessary for Him to die for each fallen angel individually. But He chose not to do that. Instead, He chose to enter the human race to redeem us. Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same, that through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That verse tells us Jesus entered the human race to die for the human race, but He did not die for angels. Two verses later, in Hebrews 2.16, we are told, For indeed, He does not give help to angels. In the context, that verse is saying, when it talks about help, it's talking about redemption help. It is saying, He did not and does not bring salvation to fallen angels. If He had purposed to do that, He would have had to die for each fallen angel and thus die many, many times. He could not die one time for the angelic race because the angels are not a race. They are each individual creations of God. Maybe this is one of the reasons why the angels are so intrigued by our salvation. Did you know that? Were you aware of that fact? Did you know that the angels desire to look into and understand our salvation? We are told that in our text this morning. Please turn with me over near the end of the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our series through this first 
letter written by the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First <clears throat> Peter chapter 1. And please follow along as I read verses 6 through 12, though our focus this morning will be verses 10 through 12, having already covered some of the earlier verses we'll read. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing... You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. As we have seen over the last couple weeks, the people to whom Peter wrote this letter were going through hard times. In verse 6, he said they were experiencing various trials or all kinds of trials. Maybe some were experiencing sickness, some financial difficulty, some loss of of some sort, uh, difficult relationships, disappointment, and other things. In addition, we know that some of them were suffering because of persecution. Therefore, Peter wrote this letter to encourage them and strengthen them. One of the ways he sought to do this was to help them get their eyes off their present struggles, off their present sufferings, and focused on their future hope. That's his goal in the opening 12 verses of this chapter. Before he gives them an exhortation in verse 13, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, before he gives them this exhortation to pull things together, he seeks to encourage them, and he wants to strengthen them. He does this by reminding them of the glorious salvation they have received, and that will culminate in the future. After mentioning that salvation possessed by his readers, Peter expands his discussion to talk about the Old Testament prophets and the angels and their interest in this salvation. Notice how he does this. Verse 10, he says, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. It is obvious that Peter is talking about Old Testament prophets in this verse because the New Testament prophets not only wrote about this salvation, they also experienced it. However, the Old Testament prophets only wrote about it, and they wrote about it in a predictive way. They prophesied how it would come about and how it would be accomplished. And when they did write about these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they would go back and study what they had written and what their fellow Old Testament prophets had written. 
That's an interesting fact, is it not? The Old Testament prophets studied their own writings, and they studied one another's writings. They would read and compare the prophecies to try to get a handle on the salvation that was described in their own writings and in the writings of others. They knew that the prophecies told about a future salvation, but they couldn't figure it all out. By the way, don't take this to mean that the Old Testament prophets and others in the Old Testament weren't saved. All the way back in Genesis 15, 6, we read that Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham placed faith in Yahweh, the true God, and he was declared righteous before God. That's salvation. People in the Old Testament time were saved just like we were saved, and that is by grace through faith. I can remember early on in my Christian life thinking and believing that the Old Testament people were saved by the law, and we're saved by grace through faith. That is completely unbiblical. People in the Old Testament were saved just like we are saved by grace through faith. Salvation has always been and will always be by grace through faith, regardless of the era in which a person lives. So people in the Old Testament were saved, but the prophets wrote about a future time when the one who would pay for that salvation would come to this earth. Specifically, the Holy Spirit of God directed the Old Testament prophets to write about the coming Messiah who brought salvation to this earth. You see, beloved, when people were saved during the Old Testament time, there is a sense in which their salvation was granted them on the basis of what was going to happen in the future. The Old Testament animal sacrifices did not wipe away or forgive their sins. (coughs) Those sacrifices were just a picture of the true and ultimate sacrifice that was to come. That's why I say that when people were saved during the Old Testament time, there's a sense in which their salvation was granted to them on the basis of what was going to happen in the future. Let me show you this in the book of Romans, chapter 3. Go back to the left to the book of Romans. After the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans, chapter 3. Paul describes this in some very technical language, technical wording, here in Romans 3, verse 24. When he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith (coughs) to demonstrate his righteousness. Now watch this. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These verses answer all the questions concerning God's justice and righteousness. How could God seemingly allow sin in the Old Testament time to go unpunished? Obviously, the animal sacrifices didn't take the sin away. And how could God just acquit us, forgive us, of our guiltiness of sin? The answer is because of the death of Jesus Christ. 
When Jesus died, God reached all the way back to Adam and took care of the sins of believers that he seemed to simply pass over or ignore. So no one can question God's justice. And today, when we place faith in Jesus Christ and God justifies us, declares us righteous, no one can question God's justice. The benefits of Jesus' death go backward and forward. They go backward to benefit those who lived before the cross and were believers. And they come forward to benefit those of us who believe today. Because of the death of Jesus Christ, God can be just and the justifier of those who place faith in Christ. To say it another way, God can maintain His justice and at the same time extend grace to us Because God's justice and God's grace kissed at the cross. This is such an important point that the Apostle Paul, in verse 26, repeats the phrase he used in verse 25, the phrase, to demonstrate his righteousness. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that God did not compromise his righteousness by seemingly passing over previous sins, or by declaring us righteous. You know, this probably isn't as big of a deal to the mind of modern man as it should be. Because, unfortunately, we seem to minimize the importance of justice. We seem to minimize the importance of the righteousness of God. But think of it this way. For God to pass over wrong which we really don't have any problem with because we're sinners, but for God to pass over wrong is as much an act of injustice as it would be to condemn innocent people to a fate they don't deserve. Now just think about the outcry from people if God condemned innocent people to a fate they didn't deserve. The outcry would be immense. How could God do that kind of thing? Yet people don't ask the same kind of question when it comes to forgiveness. How could God do that? We're glad to accept that without thinking about the implications. So for God to pass over wrong is as much an act of injustice as it would be to condemn innocent people. Because God is righteous, He can't do either. God did what this what this passage is telling us is that God did everything exactly right in order to maintain His justice while at the same time justifying ungodly men and women. John Whitmer put it this way, and I quote, God's divine dilemma was how to satisfy His own righteousness and its demands against sinful people, and at the same time, how to demonstrate His grace, love, and mercy to restore rebellious, alienated creatures to Himself. End quote. Praise be to God that He solved this dilemma through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so we can be forgiven and righteous in God's eyes. So people were saved or justified in the Old Testament era, but there's a sense in which their salvation was granted to them on the basis of what was going to happen in the future. Now back to our text in 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> it 
So the Old Testament prophets wrote about the grace that would come in the New Testament era when the Messiah came on the scene, but they couldn't always understand everything they wrote. Specifically, what was it that confused them? What was it that didn't make sense to them? Here it is. What they didn't understand was how the Messiah could be rejected and suffer, but also be accepted as the glorious king of the whole earth. That's what Peter mentions in the next verse, verse 11. He says, searching what person or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. Do you see their dilemma? How could the Messiah be rejected by the whole world and suffer, but also be accepted as the glorious king of the whole earth? How could both of those things be true? Yet, this is exactly what the prophecies predicted. Some prophecies spoke about a rejected, suffering Messiah. Other prophecies spoke about a glorious, reigning Messiah. And sometimes these seemingly contradictory statements were made right in the same context, in the same verse. This is what was so perplexing to the Old Testament prophets. They didn't realize or know that there would be two comings of the Messiah. We know this today from our vantage point, but they didn't know it. So they couldn't figure out how the Messiah could be rejected and suffer but also be accepted as the glorious king of the whole earth. They could clearly see both realities in their writings, but they didn't know how they could fit together. As an illustration of their perspective, think about looking at two mountain peaks from a distance. These two mountains are lined up one behind the other, exactly in line from your vantage point. And the back one is higher than the front one. If you are quite a distance away from these two mountains, it looks like they are right next to each other. But if you get up on top of the per first peak, you can see that there is a huge valley between them. In the same way, when the Old Testament prophets were looking at the two aspects of the coming Messiah, it appeared to them that they would take place at the same time. But we now know that there is a huge gap of time between them consisting of, of at least 2,000 years. We have a perspective they couldn't have when they were writing hundreds of years before the Messiah came. That's why they were, were perplexed about what person, what person could be a rejected suffering Messiah and a glorious reigning Messiah. This dilemma is so difficult to understand, beloved, that it has led to a view in rabbinic literature known as the two-Messiah view. This is what the rabbis have proposed. The rabbis have created a theory that says there will be two messiahs, the suffering messiah and the reigning messiah. Of course, the Bible teaches no such thing. But it illustrates the same point that Peter is making here, which is the fact that the Old Testament prophets could not figure out how the Messiah could suffer and reign. Not only that, they also tried to figure out the timing of all that was written about the Messiah. 
they probably assumed, and understandably so, that the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories of the Messiah would all take place in one lifetime. So verse 11 tells us they tried to figure out how that timing could work. Would the Messiah suffer for a while and be rejected for a while, but then be victorious over his enemies and establish his kingdom? These are the kinds of issues they wrestled with in their studies and in their contemplation of their own writings and the writings of others. They knew their writings were accurate because the Holy Spirit here in this verse called the Spirit of Christ was the one who gave them the prophetic predictions. They knew their message was not their own. Their message came from the Holy Spirit of God. Peter reaffirmed this same truth in 2 Peter 1.21, where he wrote, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter made a similar statement about inspiration in Acts 1.16 when he used the expression, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. That's what inspiration is. It is the Holy Spirit of God guiding human spokesmen to speak or write what he wants to be communicated. And that is exactly what happened when the Old Testament prophets wrote. They wrote the Holy Spirit's message, and then they tried to understand all the implications of what they wrote. But they weren't the only ones intrigued with this salvation, because Peter mentions another group in verse 12. He says, To them it was revealed that not to themselves... But to you or to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. The Old Testament prophets eventually realized that their message was not for their time. It was for the future. It was for those of us who are on this side of the cross. Just how much they grasped is open to speculation. Some Bible teachers believe that people in the Old Testament, like Job, Abraham, David, etc., and the prophets, pretty much knew everything about the future Messiah. They knew He was going to come and die on the cross for our sins. Others tend to believe that their understanding was far more limited because they just couldn't put all the pieces together. They knew a Messiah was coming, But they didn't have a clear understanding that he was coming to die, a sacrificial death, as our substitute, so we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God. I am in this camp or of this persuasion, as far as their perspective or their understanding. But either way, it is clear that the Old Testament prophets had to inquire and search carefully in an attempt to correlate the diversity of statements made about the Messiah in the various prophecies. As I said earlier in the message, there are times when Old Testament prophecies make statements about the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah in the same context, but the Old Testament prophets didn't realize there were two comings. Let me show you just one example of this to illustrate it. Go back into Hebrew Scripture to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. After the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon... Isaiah chapter 61. Right near the end of Isaiah's elaborate prophecy, 
he records this statement, which is clearly messianic, a, a prophecy about the Messiah. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now stop right there. This part of the prophecy that we just read, This part pertains to the first coming of Messiah Jesus. But the very next phrase pertains to His second coming. Notice the very next phrase. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That statement about the day of God's vengeance And the day of God's universal comforting of all people has reference to the second coming of Christ when He will return in judgment and when He will return to bring the kingdom and restore justice. But verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 speak of the first coming of Christ. Beloved, it would have been virtually impossible for Isaiah to have known this fact. Yet, We know this is the case because, exactly because of the way Jesus handled this passage in his ministry. Let me show you that. On your way back to 1 Peter, stop in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And it is fascinating to see how Jesus interpreted that very passage we just read. Luke chapter 4. beginning in verse 16. We read, So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now you're going to recognize these words because they're right out of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus stopped reading. Verse 20, Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. By the way, they would stand to read, sit down to teach. So this is very customary. Stands up to read. He sits down. People know he's going to say something. They know he's going to teach. So they're anticipating. What is he going to say about this passage? They knew it was messianic. He sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The interesting thing about this event is that when Jesus quoted this passage from Isaiah 61, he stopped right in the middle of verse 2. He didn't quote the part of the verse that says, And the day of the vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God and the comforting of all people. He didn't quote that part because that part of the verse won't take place until the second coming. So if he had quoted that part of the verse, if he had kept reading and read the entire part of verse 2, he would not have been able to say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Jesus understood how all the prophecies relate. But the Old Testament prophets couldn't always figure out how everything would fit together. Now back to our text there in 1 Peter chapter 1. So Peter tells us in verse 12 that it was revealed to the Old Testament prophets that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. They were writing about things that would take place during the lifetime of the Messiah and on this side of the cross, and they were living on that side of the cross. And once those things took place, the things they wrote about, the New Testament apostles and prophets, as well as others, began spreading the word. (coughs) That's why Peter says here in verse 12, the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So here's how it worked. The Old Testament prophets predicted these things. The New Testament apostles and prophets witnessed them. And the Holy Spirit empowered their preaching of the good news to others. And that chain of communication has continued right down to the present day, our day. The Holy Spirit of God not only empowered the preaching of the New Testament apostles and prophets, He also inspired the writers of the New Testament to record the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So today, we have an inspired, authoritative account of the gospel. So listen to this. If you are a Christian... Sitting here today, if you are a Christian, somewhere along the way, you were told this gospel, or you read this gospel, and you responded in faith to receive this glorious salvation. That's the chain that Peter is describing here in verse 12. Somewhere along the line, in this long chain that started all the way back with the Old Testament prophets, fulfilled by Jesus, the New Testament apostles and prophets, and those who spread the word up to our day, somebody spread the word to you. Or somebody gave you a Bible and you were able to read the word for yourself. But you are a part of this chain. If you are a Christian, you heard this gospel and you received this glorious salvation. Back in verse 3, Peter says, This salvation has a living hope. In verse 4, he says this salvation involves a future inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and is unfading, reserved in heaven. In verse 5, he says that those, those of us who have believed the gospel are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 6, Peter says we greatly rejoice in this salvation. In verse 7, he says, Our faith that leads to salvation is more precious than gold. In verse 8, he says that this salvation enables us to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In verse 9, he says that someday we will receive the culmination of this salvation. No wonder the last phrase in verse 12 says, Things which angels desire to look into. The angels are intrigued by this marvelous salvation that has been granted to us. The angels are fascinated by this glorious salvation given to men and women. Remember, angels do not and cannot experience salvation 
fallen angels, which are demons, are damned forever. No chance of redemption. And holy angels don't need salvation. So angels do not experience salvation. Angels cannot experience salvation. They cannot relate to us on an experiential basis. They cannot relate to our experience. All they can do is observe our salvation and consider our salvation and look into our salvation and probe our salvation. Ephesians 3.10 indicates that our salvation makes known the wisdom of God to these spirit beings. Beloved, do do you know that? Do you realize that? That God saved you Not merely to forgive your sins, not just to take you to heaven. God saved you to be an object lesson to angels. That's right. You and I are an object lesson to angels of God's wisdom, says Ephesians 3.10. Angels can only appreciate salvation from a distance. But we can and should appreciate it experientially. We get to experience it. Have you experienced it? Have you repented of your sin and received God's glorious salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? If you have, please hear me. Do you still appreciate it? Or have you lost your wonder? Have you lost your amazement? Are you still in awe that God has saved you? Are you still in awe of what God has done for you? Beloved, if the angels of God are intrigued by and fascinated by our salvation, we should be no less. We have the indescribable privilege of being recipients of a salvation, a glorious salvation that angels can only look into. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes, I ask you once again, have you experienced God's glorious salvation? Have you? Don't don't pass that question off quickly. Don't dismiss it. Force yourself to ask that question. Have you experienced God's glorious salvation? Have you repented of your sin and received Jesus Christ by faith? If not, you do not have salvation. No matter how much you've tried to earn it or work for it or merit it or deserve it, you don't have it. You don't. Unless you have, in childlike faith, received it. And if you have, which my guess is most people here this morning, the majority, most of you probably know Christ. Are you in awe? of your salvation, or is it ho-hum? Yeah, you know, I've been saved 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Are you still in amazement? Is it still a wonder to you what God has done? If the angels of God are fascinated by our salvation and in awe of it, we should be no less. If you are less, then ask the Spirit of God to revive your heart Renew within your heart an appreciation, an amazement 
for what God has given us in the salvation that is found in His Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, that is our prayer. We pray, first of all, for anyone who is here with us who has not received your glorious salvation. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction. May He bring an understanding of the gospel so that any man, woman, young person gathered here today who is without Christ would humble themselves and respond in childlike faith to receive Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have had that grace wrought or accomplished in our hearts, we, we want to confess if we, have, if we have allowed our hearts to grow cold toward the wonder and amazement, the glory of the salvation that is ours in Christ. Renew our hearts. Revive our hearts. Refresh our hearts so that we would return to that awe and appreciation and intrigue and fascination even as, as the angels look at our salvation in that manner. So we ask these things together in the precious and priceless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.